Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply stock have too high a price buy a slice trade fractional shares of your favorite u.s stocks and etfs in any dollar amount you choose with zero commissions online get started at fidelity.com slash stocks by the slice fractional share quantities can be entered to three decimal places if the value of the order is at least one cent dollar-based trades can be entered to two decimal places sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from one cent to three cents per one thousand dollars of principal fidelity brokerage services llc member nyse sipc oh hey it's still the third automatic soap dispenser who finally recognizes that your hand exists thank you for coming back to me on your second trip to the bathroom remember wash your hands milk the thumbs this is Allie Ward back for part two of Servidology with the Rehannons, Curtin, and Jacob Pack. Now, if you are tuning in only to part two and you're like, wait, who, what is a Rhiannon? What does it have to do with scarves and Welsh mythology? Head back to part one and listen to it first for a primer on what a deer even is. And there's ungulate gossip. There's fawn talk. There's much more. You're also going to learn that Rhiannon Jacobak has an American accent. This is Rhiannon Jacobak. And Rhiannon Curtin has a mildly British Aussie American accent. I'm Rhiannon Curtin. And says dia and hoofs. Both of them are great. Now, in this episode, part two, we answer all of your questions, your burning, irrepressible questions, your servid curiosities you've held in your heart and you've let explode forth via Patreon, where you can join for literally 25 cents an episode, a dollar a month, which is about a quarter of the rate of a parking meter, minutes-wise. So thank you, patrons, for making the show possible. Thanks to everyone who supports by wearing items from ologiesmerch.com and who keeps ologies up among the top science giants in the charts by making sure that you're subscribed and by rating and reviewing that stuff really matters. Also, just to show and prove that it matters to me, I pour through the reviews and I pick a fresh one. Like this one from Ologite Penelope, who says, I'm the dad they never had and that they downloaded the Apple Podcast app specifically to leave a review and now they don't know what to say, but thanks for creating something that feels like a warm educational hug when I need it the most. Penelope, get on over here. Okay, so let's get to this wonderful follow-up episode where you're going to learn how to not hit a deer with your car and the ethics and the culture of hunting. We talk about chronic wasting disease, deer farts, elf spotting, antler finding. We discuss deer who use crosswalks, deer who are more goth than any of us will ever be. And honestly, one of the weirdest animal facts I have ever learned in the history of ologies, I cannot, cannot, cannot believe it's true. It is soul rattling. Who boy. I envy you that you're about to listen to this interview for the first time. Prepare. Okay, so once again, dear listeners, buckle up for scientists, Rhiannons, and servitologists, Rhiannon Curtin and Rhiannon Jacobak. Can I ask y'all Patreon questions? Yes. Is that okay? 
I'm so nervous, but yes. Okay. Will Pliwa and Samantha Heineke both wanted to know if they chew their cud and they do they burp methane? Is it kind of like cows? Um, my advisor is an, a nutritional ecologist. Like this is his jam. And so they are ruminants. So they do have like a similar digestive system to cows, whereas things like horses are hindgut fermenters. So they have like a different system. Ooh. So deer have all of the rumen. They have the like chamber that has all the microbes and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, as well as cows. I guess there's like carbon budgets or like a balance, right? It's not just what you put out through farts or whatever. (laughs) 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 Um, And so I don't know if you can really compare it to cows other than like they might fart methane (laughs) um, because the the actual balance of like how much goes in and how much goes out would be different because cows are usually fed like soy which is a crop which Mm. we farm and then you use like fossil fuels for your tractor it's actually super complicated i'm not a food scientist yeah that makes sense okay quick side note no one's really measuring deer farts are they they are now one new zealand study i found titled comparative methane emissions from cattle red deer and sheep red total Daily methane production from cattle is 140 grams per day, which was greater than red deer, which are elk, at 31 grams per day, which was greater than sheep at 18.3 grams a day. Because you figure they've got smaller buttholes anyway. Now, because methane is 20 to 30 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide when it comes to trapping in heat and poaching the planet, a lot of eyes are looking at cow butts, a lot of fingers pointing toward cow butts, and actually by volume, more their burpy faces as a way to cut our methane addiction. So one company in Texas called Baser Labs has developed probiotics that can cut bovine belches by up to 50%, which is a measure which could reduce livestock's impact on climate change. But right now, the meat and dairy industries are right up there with transportation in terms of changing our Earth's temperature for the not better. So if you're eating a cheeseburger on a private jet right now, maybe just try to do one of those things instead of both. Um, Ashley Tunney, first time question asker, wants to know, is it true that deer's antlers can give people diseases? Is that a thing? The antlers specifically? Yeah. Is there anything disease-wise that you can get from a deer antler? I don't think you, like, I don't think, no. Okay. Good. <laughs> I yeah. I also think no. Like if you're talking about picking up like deer sheds, then I don't think so. But also, you should always find out from your local wildlife management unit whether you're allowed to pick up deer sheds. Oh, because you sometimes can't. Uh, I don't know if it's allowed in all places. I'm okay. just a big advocate of like ring someone or. Google that before you go somewhere. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So actually this is something that's been kind of a hot topic in, in Wyoming recently. And I think it's getting to be a bigger topic across the Western U S at least is when and where you're allowed to pick up antlers. It's called shed hunting. And so a lot of people will go out early on in the winter, like right after they drop their sheds, if they, if, if given the option, they would go and pick up the sheds right away. And that, 
like sheds are cool. Antlers are really cool, but they're also a really good way to make easy money. If you can find them, you can sell them for a ton of money right now. Um, But if you are out on these animals, winter ranges in the winter, it's really hard on those critters. So like, say you're driving around or you're walking around and you scare some deer, those deer then have to like run through the snow, which is really energetically costly. And they are surviving on like sagebrush and the reserves from the summer. So they like don't have that much to work off of. So each time you bump them, it can be problematic. In Canada, or at least in Ontario where I live, you are not allowed to remove anything from parks, be it like a feather or a branch or anything. So it definitely depends on where you are, but also it has larger consequences. So two out of two Rhiannon cervidologists agree to check with your local wildlife management before shed hunting. And think about it every time you're about to scare a deer. You just took a few bills out of their winter energy budget. Come on, man. Ellie Abbott, first time question asker, wants to know, what does deer social structure look like? We have a few moms and babies and bucks that pass through our yard. Do they interact with each other? Like, are they friends? Do they hang out? What's their deal? Yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay, cool. So most of my research is on like the ramifications of deer social structure. So I'm very excited to talk about this question. So in white-tailed deer, and we think also in mule deer, though it's been studied less extensively, there's this idea of uh, the rose petal hypothesis. It's the spatial arrangement of animals. So like one mom will have her little home range and then she gives birth to a daughter. That daughter lives and then that daughter sets up a home range really close to her mom. These home ranges kind of slightly overlap a little bit. So these home ranges start to look like the petals of of a rose with an entire family group being like a single rose. And so normally that family group is what we would call a matriline. So it's a group of female family members. And then evolutionarily, the Males should disperse to prevent inbreeding. Go on, now get! Okay, so imagine a rose with overlapping regions, and it's just like a bunch of aunts and sisters and daughters, all kicking it, steel magnolia style, just chitter-chattering, and then, you know, some unrelated dudes come into town like, Hey, ladies. But the social structure of deer kind of ebbs and flows throughout the year. So when a mom is going to give birth, she will, like, kick off her last year's offspring sometimes like super super violently (laughs) Um, so i have seen this before and a graduate student at the university of wyoming ashley ray is looking into this but basically a deer can like like kick with their two front feet and like go away get away from my new fawns wow Um, so they will like super isolate themselves from everyone else but then over time like a month or two, uh, those family groups will kind of come back together. And it's normally uh, females. Sometimes last year's male offspring are tolerated. Uh, and then the bucks are off kind of doing their their own thing in, in what are called bachelor groups. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then um, one question that hasn't been evaluated a ton, but I think is going to hopefully be quite examined soon is 
Do they migrate together? Are they in big old social groups? Is it just everybody's going the same direction? So you just kind of like, it's like traffic and you just get funneled together. (laughs) Who knows? Yeah, their social structure can change throughout the year. But perhaps this listener has like a family group Mm -hmm. in their yard. And then if it's okay to like, or like go into my research a little bit, but this, this notion of like family groups and being connected to your family is really important potentially for how animals learn how to migrate. And so migration is really important behavior for a lot of ungulates in the Western United States, for example, because the areas that are at high elevations are super lush in the summer and like make for really good fat gain, which is a really important thing for a deer, but they are completely inhospitable during the winter because of snow, like Mm -hmm. super deep snow. So those deer got to get out of there. Mm -hmm. And so they go down to their lower elevation winter ranges, but those winter ranges, like they're great for the winter, but they are definitely not ideal. Like they're mostly just sagebrush, which is fine. It'll get you through, but it's not what you want to be eating, especially when you're raising fawns. But we are thinking that moms actually teach their offspring how to go, how to migrate and where to go. And so we are tracking mule deer fawns from the day that they are born and throughout their entire lives oh. until uh, until they die, basically, uh, trying to understand like how do they learn these migratory routes? Are they adopting the migratory routes of their of their mom? Are they not? Are they doing their own thing? So they don't have a GPS. They don't have phones with GPS is what you're saying. They definitely Correct. don't have way. <laughs> like, they do. So the, these deer like do the same thing year after year for the most part. And there are some animals that deviate, but like most of them do the same thing year after year. This story is wild. I can't stop thinking about it. And there needs to be a road trip movie about it. Okay. And then there was this one animal that we were studying that we had had a collar on her from the day that she was born. So we knew like all of her movements throughout her entire life. We also had her mom collared. So we knew where her mom had been. And this deer was born on summer range. She migrated down to winter range with her mom, hung out on winter range with her mom, migrated back to summer range with her mom. Like that's exactly what we expect deer to do. This was like the typical A student of a deer. But then this deer just like, decided to for some reason just peace out and she just went on a walkabout like we thought that she was going to be dispersing she went like 60 miles up and over mountain ridges she gained and lost like 24,000 feet in elevation like the highest mountain in Wyoming is Gannett Peak and it is just under 13,000 feet so this deer like climbed and uh Gannett Peak like twice basically so she just like did this walkabout and then she was gone or she did that for a little while and then truly on a Monday morning she was just like oh I'm good now I'm gonna go home I'm pretty tired I think I'll go home now and she just like turned around and but she took exactly the same route back whoa and like we knew exactly where she had been like We had her collared, so we know that she had never been there before. We knew where her mom was, so we knew that her mom had not, like, shown her this route. But she took that exact same route back. Yeah, so up and over all these mountain ranges, whatever. Keep in mind that I, like, I get lost all the time. And I have a GPS. Like, (laughs) I have a GPS in my hand in these mountains, and I am, like, 
two kilometers from the truck. And sometimes I'm like, oh my gosh, where am I? <laughs> I get lost in the grocery store. Right. I'm like, where's the where's the bakery aisle? That's amazing. <gasps> right. And like it's this these are these animals that sometimes that we think are like not super smart or mm-hmm. like maybe we know everything because we've been studying them for so long but like these animals are way smarter than we think super smart they're super smart and they have the ability to like gain a ton of spatial information and use it and store mm-hmm. it and then potentially for years and so they only have to be able to be exposed to a thing like one time and then they can just be like okay cool this is what i'm gonna do okay ran and k also studies deer in space but not like astro deer or cosmos but like deer and just where they're at physically. I mean, I study spatial interactions between hunters and deer. Deer learn, like, the hunting season usually coincides with the rut, which is the breeding season. So how Rhiannon was talking about groups of deer, sometimes the bucks live in bachelor groups, but in the breeding season, they're, like, competing with each other for females, so they'll split up and be solitary so that they can get the most females. But as part of that, we also have hunting season at the same time in most places. And some deer have learned about hunters, I guess. And there's some studies that suggest that during the hunting season, deer actually become more nocturnal. (gasps) So they are more active at nighttime to avoid hunters because Ah. in most places you're not allowed to hunt. Okay, I don't know what I'm saying in most places. Yeah. Hunting in the dark is generally not allowed. Yeah. <laughs> for, for very obvious, like, safety reasons. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, in most places. No, everywhere. Um, so, deer have learned, I guess, about the threat of hunters. And unlike other mammalian predators, like wolves and stuff, like, people hunt deer the same time every year and it's always in the daytime and deer know that so they'll become more active at nighttime during the hunting season to avoid people smart Um, and where i worked in montana i worked right next to the charles m russell wildlife refuge and there was an area called slippery ann (laughs) and it's like so you can hunt in the wildlife refuge and then in Slippery Inn, it's this area within the wildlife refuge, like a parcel of land where you're not allowed to hunt. And coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally, lots of the elk like to hang out there during the rut. So if you ever find yourself in eastern Montana and you go to Slippery Inn during the rut, which is also the hunting season, you're like almost guaranteed to see elk. We went down there and saw a bunch of elk and it was really cool. And there's like an elk report. I think there's like a line and you can bring it and they tell you how many elk are there. Uh, In case you want to put this in your speed dial, the Slippery Ann Elk Viewing Conditions Hotline is 406-535-6904. Nice. So let's get them on the horn. Let's get them on the antler. Let's see what they say. Big money, big money. No whammies. Thank you for calling. Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge's Slippery Ann Elk Viewing Area Hotline. Today's date is September 1st, 2020. There are currently 200 <gasps> to 250 elk in the viewing area. Yes. Please remember the elk viewing area is closed to all public entry beyond the road's edge. 
Okay. Being too close or disturbing animals can be unsafe for you and very stressful to wildlife. Use binoculars, spotting scopes, or telephoto camera lenses to get closer. The elk viewing area hotline will be updated in the beginning of each week or as numbers change. Thank you so much and have a great day. But there's definitely some studies and lots of anecdotal evidence that deer learn these things and will behave accordingly to avoid people and being shot, which is really cool. And like when I lived in British Columbia, we used to see a lot more deer in town during the hunting season, which of course is just anecdotal, but um, yeah. it fits in with this idea that deer are very good at learning things about people. They're so smart. Yeah. So I, smart. That's what I was going to ask. I'm so surprised that they are that smart because I think that they have such a reputation for like, derp, 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 derp. oh, I'm on the road, you know, like. <laughs> well, and this is why you shouldn't go up close to them because they're watching you. They know what you're up to. They're not about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my dad on the family group chat always loves to get critter pictures. And right before I did this interview, he mentioned when my sister sent a deer picture that deer go into town in hunting season. And I was like, really? And he was like, well, no, that's just what hunters say when they don't come home with any venison. But it turns out, Grandpod, there's some truth to it. The bucks are like, yeah, bye. I'm heading into town, suckers. <laughs> Well, Shirley Dark had this question, a patron asked, do deer develop street smarts in suburban areas? I live in Montana and have the cool dudes in my yard all the time. They love my crab apple tree, but it's not unusual <laughs> to see deer use crosswalks or to wait for traffic to pass before crossing the street. They don't even seem bothered by people. Are they adapting to city life? And also, should we make sure that they social distance and wear masks also? <laughs> they ask. Ooh, I don't know about deer specifically, but there is some amount of talk about behavioral syndromes and selection, like in evolution, that the deer that are not particularly road smart or people smart will be killed and then they won't pass on their genes to their offspring whereas like deer who don't get killed will pass on their genes to their offspring so there's probably something in that i don't know specifically about crosswalks but <laughs> there is a lot of info out there about like how deer learn and also how we select for specific traits through the way that we interact with wildlife and deer okay side note if you were to google do deer use crosswalks like I just did? You will find dozens of YouTube videos and morning news segments of deer just chilling at a light, waiting for it to change. Just wait for a break in traffic. Now, as a human person myself who got mowed down jaywalking at the age of 12, I can confidently say that deer are smarter and more patient than Allie Ward. Okay, on that topic of city servants, a bunch of folks on Patreon, such as Jason Enoch, Tover Hennis, Zach Strickland, Nathan Bronick, my cousin, J.V. Hampton-Vincent, Megan Walker, Kazia Winooski, Karen Blaisdell, all had questions about deer and vehicular interactions, as did Oryx Basia, who asked plainly, why do I hit them so much? And Hannah Black, who apologetically submitted the question, why do deer cross the road? Sorry. Now, deer car collisions were also on the minds and apparently the bumpers of these first-time question askers, Laura Southerner, Amelia Page, 24, and Lauren Ehrenholtz, who notes, growing up in rural Missouri, I've had deer hit me while driving. So let's ask two Rhiannon servidologists how to take the BAM 
out of Bambi in yet another first-time question asker, Monica Quapwitz words. Um, what actually works for preventing hitting deer while driving? I've heard to flash your brights and they'll start moving <laughs> instead of literally being a deer in the headlights. But why do they stop in headlights? If they were to see a predator, would freezing help them? Is that why they do it? Or is I that mean, a myth? Like, evolutionarily, these critters are not used to like things with big bright lights coming at them yeah. at like 70 miles an hour. Uh-huh. And so mm-hmm. like, every time I'm like, oh my God, deer, why are you in the road? Like, oh, they have not had to deal with this until the past 20 years. That's just not fast enough to produce some sort of some sort of change. And so I always try to remind myself that it takes a little bit of work. But there's been a good amount of research that is emerging, at least in, in Wyoming. And this is led by Corinna R- Reginos. I think I'm saying her name right. I hope I'm saying her name right. Uh, but she has been trying all of these different treatments. So to, to reduce collisions with deer at night. One of them being something like having a, a reduced speed limit that doesn't really work because people don't really <laughs> follow the speed limit even at night. Right. So, um, but there was one kind of clever thing that was found just like accidentally by their research. So they were going to be doing this experiment that was looking at like, these little reflectors on the side of the road that when your car lights hit them, it alerts the deer like, Oh, Hey, there's a thing. Don't come here. Um, and they were doing a, a, like a treatment of those and then a control in another area. And so they left like the reflectors in one area normal. And then they put white canvas bags over the other ones. It was just a way to cover up those reflectors, but actually those white canvas bags deterred deer better than the reflectors potentially (laughs) actually going back to the white tailed deer butt thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, maybe it was like a, it looked like a signal from another deer that was like, Oh, alert. This is a white bag that looks (gasps) like a deer, butt. do not cross the road here. Um, (laughs) Ah. so there, there are like those, those, those different fixes that are trying to be experimentally sussed out and whether they work and to what extent they work, but far and above the best way to reduce deer collisions or just wildlife collisions generally is over or under passes. And of course, those are super expensive and they're hard to implement and you have to maintain them, whatever, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. they are like 80 to 90% or even higher than that effective at reducing collisions. So that's not something that an individual can do. You can't just be like, okay, (laughs) I'm going (laughs) to go. But you can support that legislation because it is safer for the wildlife and safer for you. Yeah. Yeah. Wildlife underpasses and overpasses are really great and they've done so much great work in Banff Park there's tons and tons if you've ever been to Banff there's a bunch of wildlife overpasses and underpasses which do amazing things for all the wildlife there um I think part of the whole deer in the headlights thing is like the other Rhiannon was saying that they're not used to like that level of direct light in their face and it probably actually blinds them temporarily Mm. you know like when you go to the eye doctor and Mm. they put drops in your eyes to dilate your eyes it's probably like that Mm. um so they literally just they're like blinded don't like try to avoid driving at dusk and dawn is the best advice if you're wanting to avoid a collision with deer um i must shout out to my friend anna she used to deer spot for me when we would do field work at nighttime we'd have to drive at dusk and she would sit in the passenger seat and be like oh. deer a deer a deer doe a deer a female deer 
Are they more active in those hours in dusk and dawn? Yes. Oh. Yes. Yeah. So they're okay. it's called crepuscular, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a fun word to say word. and spell. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. For uh, sure. But yeah, yeah. So they're they're most active during oh. yeah. dawn and dusk. So definitely avoid those times of day if you mm-hmm. can. Um, Sophie Gilbert at the University of Idaho. She does excellent work about deer, and she wrote a paper about costs and benefits of like wildlife and one of the things they looked at was like how can you reduce the cost of deer in terms of wildlife vehicle collisions and they were like well you know if you had more mountain lions then you would reduce the deer and then you'd have less deer vehicle collisions now for more on this see dr sophie gilbert's paper socioeconomic benefits of large carnivore recolonization through reduced wildlife vehicle collisions which also includes i'll be honest i looked it up two full color drawings of a deer getting unceremoniously yeeted by like a ford taurus oh you poor deer we're gonna take a quick break after it you are going to hear the weirdest patreon question and answer i have maybe ever heard and it's been like over 150 episodes This one got me so good. Okay, so stick around. It's worth it. But first, a few words about sponsors who make it possible for us to make a donation in the Rhiannon's name to a charity of their choosing, which is the Sponsored Membership Fund through the American Society of Mammalogists, which supports ASM membership for mammalogists in developing countries, making mammalogy accessible to as many people as possible. So which, again, that's made possible by sponsors whose discounts you're going to hear about now. Ologies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Squarespace, and Squarespace has been part of my daily life for the last seven and a half years. Ologies might not exist without Squarespace. I had to make a website for this, and I was so intimidated. It took me over a year, and then one night I was like, you know what? I've heard about Squarespace. I'm going to try it, and now look at us. If you don't think you need a website, guess what? You probably do, especially if you're an academic, have some place where all your papers are. People can contact you. Anyway, they have so many tools for entrepreneurs. They have Fluid Engine, which is this kind of next generation website design system. It's from Squarespace. It's drag and drop technology. You can use it on desktop or mobile. They also have an asset library so you can manage all of your files from this central hub and then you can use them across the whole platform. They have professional website templates. They have designs for every category, every use case, no matter what you need a website for. Get a website, start your business. Look, it worked for me. Ding. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You could do it. You could do it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help. Because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. 
Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. Okay, here's how I like my clothes. I like them classic. I like them well-made. I like them comfortable and I like them ethical, which is why I flipped when I first heard about Quince. So Quince partners directly with these top factories. So they cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to obviously you. They have these 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters that start at 50 bucks. They have organic cotton sweaters. They have washable silk tops. They even have 14 karat jewelry in case you are looking for a present maybe for yourself. So Quince items are priced like 50 to 80% less than similar brands. But Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And I like that their styles are well-made, well-cut, but also classic. I did not own a cashmere sweater before Quince. That was the kind of thing that I would splurge for for other people, but not myself. But I was like, you know what, Quince? I think I shall. So indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash ologies. You look amazing. How you doing on that D, that vitamin D? Could be better. I feel ya. Some of us are coming out of a winter. I don't know how much outside time you get. I don't know how your vitamin D is dietarily, but I know a lot of people, including myself, especially women over 18, 97% of us not getting enough vitamin D from our diet. Ritual's like, how about I help you? They're a clinically backed multivitamin. So skeptics, here's a multivitamin that's like, yeah, we use science to formulate this. I think you're gonna like it. Ritual multivitamins are vegan. They're gluten and major allergen free. I also like that Ritual is a female founded B Corp. So they're doing good for the health of people and the planet. Ritual multivitamins are also gentle on an empty stomach. I like though when I open mine, they have kind of a minty essence. I've got Ritual vitamins in my belly right now, to be honest. I take them every day. They have kind of a lava lamp look with oil and beads inside. I also have their melatonin caps at night when I need to go bye-bye Z's. So no more shady business. Rituals Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. And get 20% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash ologies. So start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. So that's ritual.com slash ologies for 20% off. Okay, get ready. Next Patreon question. Oh my God. Uh, my wonderful cousin, Nathan Bronick. <laughs> asks, what's up with some deers eating birds? And Charlotte <laughs> Felkegaard said, yep, this how big a part of their diet is actually carnivorous. <laughs> Do they eat birds? Yeah. So, like, yes, but not frequently. What? What? Yeah. Okay, why? <laughs> how? I we eat chicken. Why not? <laughs> it's probably, like, accidental. <laughs> Well, I guess it's not accidental. I guess maybe it's opportunistic. Wow. They're not like seeking out birds. They're not like, hee hee hee, I'm going to eat this bird. <laughs> I just didn't even know that they were even a little bit omnivorous. I thought they were like absolutely like vegan to vegan or die. Like I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it, it's super rare. But I think people have caught it on like on camera if they're observing uh, like bird nests or something like that they'll be like oh my gosh a deer just ate these eggs or something along. but even if oh. only one deer only ate one bird and it was like in 1972 <laughs> i would still be freaking out right now <laughs> that's crazy he's got a bird on the ground michael he's got the bird in his mouth oh my goodness he ate a bird 
Michael, he ate a bird. He ate a bird. Did you see that? Yeah. Oh, my word. Okay, so that is an excerpt from YouTuber Linda Lou's video, and it has over 3 million plays. Because y'all, it ate a bird. But Linda and Michael, they're not alone. Ask YouTube to play you videos of deer eating birds, and you will find more than one. That's Opie eating a bird. Which is enough. I mean, like, what? Who knew? Deer. Deer's new. This is the dark underbelly of white-tummied, doe-eyed liars. Okay, along that line, uh, Gabrielle Friesen, first-time question asker, wants to know, uh, why are vampire deer like that? Are there vampire deer? <laughs> there <Yeah>. are. <laughs> what? That's, that's true. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how to answer this. They're not vampires like uh, vampire bats. Like, they don't suck blood. Their canine teeth are extra long, so they look like fangs. Oh, my God. What do they eat with them? Birds? Tons of birds? <laughs> uh, I don't think they eat birds. Okay, so these are water deer. They're native to China and Korea, and they're similar to a musk deer in that, news to me, they have giant fangs. Like deer with Halloween vampire teeth. Like a fuzzy, sweet-faced quokka cosplaying as Lestat. They look like a saber-toothed tiger had an affair with a walrus. Now, several patrons, including Ashley Burdett, Rot, first-time question asker Mercedes Maitland, and first-time question asker Mercedes Maitland, all wanted to know, as did Lainey Wagner, who asked, why on earth did evolution make the Chinese water deer so metal? As well as Hermioptia, a uh, first-time question asker, wants to know, why do Chinese water deer have tusks? Okay, so there, <laughs> yeah. there you go. <laughs> they use them to fight with. So like they don't have antlers. Their tusks serve the the same function as antlers. So exactly. they fight other deer with their teeth. Okay, mm-hmm. so they're mouth weapons. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yes. I'm yeah. cool with they're that. mouth weapons instead of head Head weapons. weapons. Right. Adornments. That's what scientists call them. <laughs> um Devin Robertson wants to know why do they make that upsetting noise that sounds like a sneeze scream? Have you ever heard this? <laughs> Does he mean uh, bugling? Is he talking I don't know. about elk? Um, so I must also give a huge shout out to my friend Kat because she is like your biggest fan. Oh, hey, Kat. But I went to Yellowstone and I went camping by myself in November in Yellowstone. It's very cold. If you do that, make sure you prepare accordingly. Mm. Um, But I had never heard an elk bugle in person before. And I'm like sleeping in my friend's car by myself. Thank you to my friend for letting me borrow their car. Um, (laughs) And I heard this noise and it's like pitch black. And I'm by myself and I was like, what is that? Oh, no. But it was the elk because the elk like hang out in the campsite and they make this like bugling noise and it kind of does sound like a haunting sort of scream. <laughs> um, and it's kind of eerie if you're by yourself camping in Yellowstone in the dark. Uh, yeah, it is. 
So do they just have the spirit of song within them? Do they need to create art? Are they super pissed? So Rhiannon Kay says that the short and long of it is that male elks bugle as a display of dominance. And if another elk bugles in the resident male's patch, he'll come and fight him. So it's kind of like two drunk broskies being like, you want to go? But voiced as a high-pitched shriek wail. And you have weapons also jutting from your skull area. Also, you're horny. Now, do deer display the gift of bugle? They don't really bugle, but they do just like kind of chatter. And so they can make little like, like, <laughs> like, that. <laughs> like that kind of noises. <laughs> um, so like, uh, so the Wyoming Migration Initiative, which is an organization through the University of Wyoming, has some really cool footage of deer migrating and the deer are just like, Meh. And they're like talking at each other, like they're very chatty. So I don't know if this is quite the example uh what this uh listener is asking. But anyway, th- so they do communicate. They're like way more vocal than I would have ever expected. Also, it's just super delightful to hear them talk. Um, but then also fawns will kind of bleat if they're really stressed out. And that's more of like a <laughs> Also, have you considered that maybe they're just doing duck calls because they're hungry for birds? <laughs> Thought about that. <laughs> Ali, this is something that we should yep. be looking into. Yep. Thank you. I'll see Thank you at the you. next conference. Um, <laughs> and Brooke Suchi, I, another first-time question asker, um, I love the way this is asked because so many people have the same question, but um, I find this very charming. Not sure of the name for that crazy deer disease, but how safe is it to eat deer meat from what Google has told me? Oh. Every deer has the disease. So this is chronic wasting disease? Yes. There is nothing cute are charming about this disease, but other patrons such as Zach Strickland, Shirley Dark, Bonnie, and first-time question askers Stephanie Friel, Sarah Brozier, Justin Andrew, Brittany, and David Dons also wanted to know about this prion disease, which means it's a transmissible neurodegenerative disease where one protein causes other proteins to fold abnormally, turning brains into kind of a collection of abnormal cootie catchers. So there are other prion diseases like mad cow disease and also kuru, which is a few eight brains you can get kuru. Anyway, then sometimes in people, if you get a prion disease, you get Creutzfeldt-Jakob's disease. And so I guess CWD is really a prevalent topic right now because of its impact on cervid populations and cervids are so valuable as game species and all sorts of other things. But I would say it's not every deer that has it. Part of the challenge with CWD eradication is that sometimes deer have it for a long time and they don't show any symptoms. Side note, what are these symptoms? They're things like emaciation, wasting, stumbling, drooping ears, drooling, and boldness around people that seems uncommon. So it is 100% fatal in cervids, but it can take years to develop any symptoms. And it's transmitted through the environment, through poops and peas. And it's spreading quickly in the last decade or so, particularly in captive animals, like on hunting ranches. Now, in captive herds, up to 80% of deer have been found infected. And in the wild, in affected areas, maybe one in 10 have CWD. And it's rising. So it's not like you can just go out and shoot the deer who have CWD because you don't always know which ones have it. 
Um, and eventually they will get sick and die, but sometimes you can shoot one if you're hunting that doesn't have any symptoms, but it is CWD positive. So lots of places now will have programs where you can send off a sample of the deer that you harvest and they'll test it and then they'll send you back and say like yes or no and then you know whether it's safe to eat it or not so i highly recommend if you're hunting deer to send it off to get tested before you eat it um we don't know whether it can be transmitted to humans yet but precautionary principle Mm. would suggest that you do not eat it before you find out whether it's positive for cwd yeah, it's a big concern and a big challenge in deer management. And lots and lots of people are working on it. Lots of very smart people. Now, until they find some kind of cure, epidemiologists can only rely on containment. Now, is it transmissible to humans? The short answer is... We don't know. Sorry. So there have been multiple studies, and some show that primates don't get it, and another study showed it is possible for monkeys to pick it up from eating these folded proteins, or prions, in the infected meat, even if it's cooked. So right now, experts think up to 15,000 animals with CWD are eaten in the U.S. every year, and it may be up to 10 years before any symptoms show up in humans. So... The CDC strongly urges that hunters do not shoot, handle, or eat meat from deer and elk that look sick or acting strangely or are found dead, like roadkill. And if you're a hunter, wear gloves to field dress. Try not to handle the brain and spinal cord or other organs too much. And don't use your kitchen knives out in the field. Also, look into testing kits if you're heading out for some fresh venison. And don't eat any of it until you've gotten the green light back from the test. I'm sorry. I know it's a bummer. Let's just, you know what? As long as we're here, let's stay sauntering down bummer lane as I ask the dark questions. What do they hate about being deer experts, aka servidologists? Is it deer ticks? Is it checking your crevices? Is it email? (laughs) Is it... What's the worst thing about it? I'm going to answer this as a graduate student, not as a servidologist. Okay. Graduate students have been found to have really high rates of anxiety and depression. Like some estimates have graduate students as experiencing anxiety and depression at six times the rate that the general population does. Uh, So it is this (laughs) very um, big issue in, in graduate school. And uh, I personally really struggled with that during my first year or two of of graduate school. I think I'm a pretty energetic and like go-getter kind of person. And then suddenly I was just like not even able to answer emails. And I was just laying on the bed, not able to do anything. Mm -hmm. And I know that depression and anxiety look different for a lot of people, but that's how it looked for me. And thankfully I was able to go to therapy and get a lot of help. And I had a phenomenal team around me. So my advisor, Dr. Kevin Monteith is a super great human being Mm -hmm. and advisor and was there with me through all of it. Um, I have a super supportive lab um, and one person in particular, Taylor Lashar, who runs the project that I am also kind of working on. She was just like instrumental in my support through that. So like, I was very lucky to have all of these support systems, which was great. And I was able to like work through a lot of those issues. And, you know, with anxiety and depression, it's not really a thing that you're just like, okay, it's done now. Yeah. But like, it, like, it's an ongoing thing. But, um, you know, I've been able to get to a much better spot. Um, but 
even though so many graduate students are struggling with these things, there is not institutional level support for the amount of resources that graduate students need. Mm -hmm. Like counseling centers and student health centers are great and integral parts of a campus. But when you have thousands of graduate students, like the University of Wyoming has, I think, 2000 graduate students, like it's really hard to have a counseling center that can support that many graduate students. So I think just there are issues within graduate school that are are very challenging. And there's not always good ways to ameliorate those. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like I said, thankfully, if you can surround yourself with really great people, which thankfully I've been able to do that, um, hopefully you can get through that if you are also struggling with that sort of thing. Is there, this is a a huge question, but um, is there one like self-care or mental health tip that you wish you had known earlier? Like, did you end up taking up like meditation or a different nighttime bedtime routine? I'm asking 100% for myself. (laughs) Like uh, anything that really helped you navigate some of that um, anxiety? Um, Well, maybe two things. Uh, One is my dogs. Uh, (laughs) Everyone should get dogs. Everyone are so I mean, as long as you're a dog person, if you're not a dog person, don't get a dog. No, every single um, person, whether you're allergic (laughs) or not, should get a dog. They they are so great. I don't know, like, I have two dogs, and they just make my life so much better. Like they have they make me like, even when I'm feeling really crappy, and I don't want to go outside. They're like, no, I like need a walk. You have to take me outside. Okay, fine. And then I go outside and there's birds around and then there's plants or there's like a squirrel to watch. There's so much cool stuff outside. So, and and then you get to just like funnel all of your love into these <laughs> beings and then they just love you unconditionally, no matter how dumb you sound in class or like that you can't get your statistical analyses to run or that you don't understand that paper, right? Like, yeah. so having that I think has been really helpful. Um, but then also uh, I have been trying to cultivate an art practice and I'm not super good at making an actual practice, but I've been able to like think through my like scientific problems with art, which I think has been really helpful. And so having that like different perspective and then like I get to learn new skills that kind of put me out of my comfort zone Mm -hmm. and then like distract me and like, they just kind of like disrupt that cycle of thinking you're not good enough enough Mm -hmm. to like, put you in a new frame of mind and you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, let me learn this new thing. And thankfully I have an advisor who is super supportive of that. Like there was one time where I told him that like, I cannot work right now. I feel like I can't work. I can't focus on anything. I sit at the computer and I just have no motivation, no energy and no interest. And he's like, well, what are you interested in? And I say like, well, I'd like to draw right now. It's like, okay, just go and draw for a little bit. And then like, draw until you get back into it. And so I would do that. I would like switch my focus from something that was really stressful to this thing that brings me joy. And I was still thinking about science, but just in a very different way. And then I'd like bring it back to science. And then I'd, you know, be back to being able to read papers and and think about analysis and that sort of thing. Oh my God, that's making me cry right now. That's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Graduate school is really hard, um, but I hope everyone can have like a really good group around them like the the relationship that you have with your advisor and with your lab mates is so at least for me it was so so important and it won't be the case for everybody but it but it really was for me and so I hope that everyone can find the advisor that like they feel comfortable with telling you know 
what their needs are and like an advisor that is receptive to that in a lab group that will be super supportive and wonderful and great. And I love all of them. And treat you like (laughs) a human being instead of a machine. Yeah. Yeah. What a novel idea. Can you believe it? (laughs) Crazy. Crazy how that makes you feel better. I feel Um, bad for laughing. No, no. A hundred percent. I'm literally laughing. I'm crying and laughing right now. So a novel approach for academia is treating human beings as if they were human beings. I like it. Now, what about Rhiannon Kay? What does she hate? <laughs> um, not specific. Uh, that's a lie. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's some really... There's some really interesting discourse in the hunting community. Um, I am not personally a hunter because... In the UK, hunting is not like it is in North America. North Americans are very lucky to be able to hunt like in the way that they do and to have access to public lands in the way that they do. Although I completely recognize that public lands have a really troubling history Mm -hmm. with colonization and Mm -hmm. stealing land from indigenous people. Um, uh, Conservation has so many problems with colonization. I'd say... um, Specific to Dia, like, yeah, some parts of the hunting community can be very frustrating. What does that mean exactly? I would love to hunt. I think hunting's great. I think it's really a sustainable way to get your meat. I'm a vegetarian largely because I try to avoid, like, animal meat unless I can, like, we have a local bison farm and sometimes I buy bison meat from them at the local market. I just find it such a challenge to find out where your meat comes from and Mm -hmm. how the animals were treated. So I fully, fully support, like if you can buy your beef from a local farmer, do it. Like it's a better deal for you. It's a better deal for the cow. It's a better deal for the farmer. They don't get screwed over by like grocery chains. Sometimes as a scientist, it's really frustrating the like lack of scientific literacy in the general population, mm-hmm. especially regarding wildlife and like safety around wildlife and like what's actually dangerous. Like the way people perceive risk when it comes to wildlife is just wildly inaccurate. Yeah. <laughs> like you're probably more likely to be killed driving your car than you are by a bear. Or like by the same count, people are like, oh, well, look at this cute little Bambi over here. I'm just going to go touch it. And then the deer like beats them with their <laughs> yeah. Um So yeah, I think generally as a scientist, that's the most frustrating thing for me. Um, as a person who studies the intersection of hunting and deer, I read a hunting blog once. I can't remember which one. Um, and it was like five things to know about hunting deer in North America. And the first one was like, we must hunt deer because they're so overabundant. So we have to keep their numbers down so they don't like damage stuff. And then two points later, it was like, we must kill predators so that they don't decimate deer populations. Didn't you just say (laughs) that deer were overabundant? But it's part of a larger thing, I think, of the way that we in the Western world, think about wildlife and wildlife management 
systems. Mm. I feel like I could go off on a tangent here, so I'm going to stop myself. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> That's so valid. That's super valid. The way that animals are politicized and, and activities are politicized is, um, is really sometimes nonsensical. So it's, It makes it's, me want to like throw my phone yeah. at people. I know. Uh, <laughs> Just don't throw it at a deer. Just don't throw it at a deer. I would never do that. You would never um, do that. You would no, never do that. No, never. I know. It is. And it's really interesting too, because um, I think that especially in the US, we equate second amendment stuff with oh. being very very super <laughs> politicized um and then right. there's also people who are conservationists and who are um maybe more left leaning who care about where their meat comes from and care about animal experience and so i think that there's probably more of a venn diagram when it comes to hunting and conservation than is realized but it's it's very much like i'm this kind of person and you're this oh, kind of person and for sure okay Quick aside, my boyfriend Jarrett, my very, very leftist right-hand man friend, we've known each other for nine years now, and we met because he used to be a butcher. Our very first interaction was me walking into an artisanal nose-to-tail boutique meat shop called Lindy and Grundy, and there was this sparkly-eyed hunk wearing a chainmail apron who made a shameless pun about tools or something, and I was like, oh, no, I'm doomed. Anyway, Fast forward from the butcher shop, and we both try to avoid meat now, and factory farming in particular, and really struggle with that. And Jared is starting to lean toward the notion that if he's going to eat meat at all, he should know its origin, and that the animal suffered minimally, and that nothing will be wasted. So wait, so I would be dating, like, a hunter dude? Will he use, like, a bow and an arrow, an atlatl, or guns? Is he going to start wearing camo hoodies? Can he be both a bleeding heart leftist and a hunter? I'm totally with him. Like yeah. my sister, she's in England and she is my twin. Oh, <laughs> full disclosure. She is like the complete uh, opposite of me as a human <laughs> being. Um, <laughs> but she, I was talking to her the other day about hunting and I was like, yeah, yeah, I wish I could hunt here, but I can't because I'm not a resident, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, Really? I thought you would not like hunting because you're a vegetarian. And I was like, yeah, but hunting is way more ethical than like buying cheap, gross beef that's like mass produced from the grocery store and the farmer yeah. gets a bad deal. And I was like, <sighs> yeah, see. And I think these kind of conversations are so important because a lot of people just because it's so politicized would be like, if you hunt deer, yeah. you love things being dead and you like guns. <laughs> and it's, instead of being like, you hate, you know, factory farming. And well, and that's something that I think is so important is to listen to perspectives that are like not yours and like reach across the aisle or whatever yeah. y'all call it down yes. there now what does rihanna J think about hunting is she appalled by all of this i had been a vegetarian for like almost all of high school and then a good chunk of my undergrad and then basically because i was lazy i started eating meat again and then had like f gone back and forth between being vegetarian <laughs> and not um but then last year i hunted for the first time so i went from like never ever thinking of like being able to kill an animal to like I hunt like a pronghorn and a, and a white-tailed deer in in the fall See? Um, um and it and right like I am 
I mean, if you see me, I have like my septum pierced and uh, I'm like, <laughs> like wearing chacos and like, I, like I drive a Subaru, right? Like I look super hippy dippy. Like I normally haven't showered in a while, I'm, right? Like, so I'm, I'm maybe not who you would expect. And I'm like, I'm not a super strong, like guns rights uh, mm-hmm. advocate, but I, I think that like, at least in, in Wyoming, which is where I've, I've spent a lot of my adult life, there's a really strong conservation ethic and just like an atmosphere of mm-hmm. hunting as like an okay part, like an important part of the culture. And so that has been very interesting to experience. And I'm still like honestly trying to suss out all of my feelings about it. I'm not 100% okay with the notion of killing an animal, but I do enjoy having protein that is ethically produced and like Mm -hmm. I know and harvested and I know where it was and like I know what it took to kill that animal I think there are a lot of really good organizations out there that if you are interested in hunting you can check out Allie if your boyfriend wants to hunt we're gonna hunt this fall he's totally Ah. welcome and I totally mean that (laughs) my god Oh my God. Seriously, like we're like bags packed. Literally, we will come out there. Yeah. (laughs) Do it. So, so please do it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We'll get rid of COVID and then in the, it will in the fall. I think it's really important to, you know, like if hunting is something that you're interested in to have, you know, like to think about it and to have these conversations because yeah, like if you told 15 year old Rhiannon that she would kill two things and then eat them, she would like, yeah. there's no, there's no way. Like I say, I'm still struggling with it, but I think these are important conversations to have with mm-hmm. yourself and with your friends and mm-hmm. whatever in, in the broader conservation and wildlife management yeah. community. So, well, and I think that also, like, I'm from England. It's people, I don't want to say people don't hunt in England, but it's not common. And like really in Montana, everyone hunts. Mm-hmm. Like my friend's dad, he is like a Bernie Sanders supporter and he mm-hmm. hunts elk. Like mm-hmm. that is just like, it's the way of life there. You know, it's not politically divided. It's just what everyone does. And I think sometimes when we live in urban settings, we like don't have exposure to that. I think that that's such an important duality to be able to hold is, um, is to understand the, the nuances of that experience for the animal, for sure. So it's complex. Now, in England, for example, a lot of open areas might be privately owned by barons and kings and stuff. But here in the U.S., we have these sprawling, gorgeous public lands on which to hunt. But those lands were stolen from indigenous folks who hunted as a traditional and practical and spiritual practice from which our modern ways of McNuggets are far removed, much to the environment's detriment. Now, Americans probably have more overlapping interests than we realize, but our weird two-party system is polarizing and stark. Our elected representatives often exploit divisions and carve them even deeper. And in a few weeks, there's going to be an episode about the sociology of voting. I can't freaking wait. Anyway, I don't know. I don't have an answer for all this. Maybe it is hunting with atlatls from the experimental archaeology episode. Which, by the way, if you would like to learn how to make some, the Angelo Robledo is holding a free three-hour workshop just for fun on September 20th via Zoom. And I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes if you want to sign up. Okay, let's look at happier stuff. Um. Oh, and then, of course, favorite thing about deer or what you do like favorite, I know it's going to be hard, but favorite thing about what you do. You can go first. <laughs> okay. Um, I 
really, really love that we are still getting outsmarted by these animals mm-hmm. that we think we know. <laughs> and like, these are charismatic megafauna. They get a ton of funding for research. Like, we care about them. They are in the news. And like, we've, we've studied them for decades in depth. And they're are still just these like weird baffling things about them. Mm-hmm. Like I really love that I can be talking with my lab mate, Taylor Lashar, who yeah, again, runs that runs the project that I'm working on. And she'll like show me a plot that she's just made. And it's like, Oh my gosh, like these deer are doing something that we had like never would have thought of. <laughs> and um, yeah, they just like continually surprise me. And I think that's really amazing. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't have known exactly how cunning they are. I think that's so interesting. Or about the birds. Somewhere out there, there is a deer crunching a bird in its mouth like a fried wonton. Just loving it. Yeah, they're just like so unexpectedly yeah. like smart, wonderful. And maybe unexpectedly isn't the right word, but you know, we see them. <laughs> yeah. They're just all over. So you can kind of take them for granted sometimes. But like they are truly remarkable critters. Mm-hmm. And Rhiannon and Kay? Okay, I'm going to say two favorite things. One of my favorite things about deer, I guess, and hunting deer, I suppose, is that like all of my friends who hunt seem to have like this real sense of community amongst themselves. So I think it's really great that like hunting can bring people together and like people who wouldn't necessarily otherwise share interests, they can like learn from each other and be outside in nature and that sort of thing. My other favorite thing is just like how much we can learn about the world through Dia. Like (laughs) it sounds like a really funny thing to say, but they're kind of this like central species or central group that have impacts on so many other parts of the system that they're in. But I guess one of the things I would love to see more of would be more black and minority hunters and anglers, because mm. I think that hunting has this really white image. And I know that there is the brotherhood of hunters in the States and they're all black hunters, but I think it would be really amazing for black communities to be able to connect with the land in this way. And there's this idea that like black communities exist in urban spaces, which is not really true. Um, I just learned a few weeks ago that there was historically like a lot of black families in the Canadian prairies, like way back when. And it's kind of just been this erasure of black people in rural spaces and also violence in the U S in rural spaces for black people but the first person to bring cattle to alberta which when you think about this today is like Mm -hmm. mind-blowing um was a man called john ware and he was a black cowboy so like you think about alberta Uh uh-huh and like what you think of when you think oh, of Alberta. The whitest of the <laughs> whitest whites. I feel like Alberta means what I just think like. Yeah. And then like you learn about John Ware and like Alberta like wouldn't even be Alberta without this black man who started it all. Mm-hmm. But like how many people could you go and ask about like who John Ware was and would they know? Like probably not. 
Side note, if you're like, I would like to know more about this badass cowboy, a formerly enslaved man who left the Carolinas to become a cattle driver through Montana and into what is now Calgary, establishing his own ranch and being a prominent Canadian businessman, well, cowboy howdy, may I suggest the brand new 2020 children's book release, Howdy, I'm John Ware, which is by Aisha Clow, with illustrations by Hugh Rookwood. Yes, there is a link in the show notes. It seems like a great book. Could it be more timely? No, it couldn't. Um, and black people do have this connection to the land and to farming and to ranching and all sorts of other things that's kind of been erased over time. So I really wish that we had that back and we could kind of rebuild that narrative and open these spaces to black people. Part of what the other Rhiannon was talking about, like being first generation or like being from um, a background that is not affluent, you often don't have the same access to these outdoor spaces and these outdoor activities as people who do come mm-hmm. from more affluent backgrounds, which is not necessarily true of hunting. Like I know lots of people who are not affluent who hunt, but I definitely think in terms of the media narrative about like hunting, it's very white. Um, yeah. And I would definitely like to see that change. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's funny because I feel like even when you see a certain kind of camouflage print, you associate (laughs) it with a political party, which is like, Like, it's so weird. So I completely agree. And I think it's, it's such an interesting conversation. And I think you both are so the people to open up that conversation, open up people's minds to that. So ask smart readings stupid questions because they're full of answers and they're wonderful and life is short and the world is beautiful and nature is complicated. Also, get excited for Black Mammologist Week starting September 13th. You can find out more about the programming for that at blackmammologist.com. And you can follow the Rhiannons on Twitter and Instagram. There are links to their pages in the show notes. More links will be up at aliwar.com slash ologies slash servidology. And there is a link to the sponsored membership fund through the American Society of Mammologists, where we sent a donation this week and last. Also follow Ologies on Twitter and Ologies on Instagram. We're at Ologies. I myself am at Allie Ward on both. Definitely follow both accounts and Chacos because this week we're going to give away a free pair. Hell yes. Chacos is not paying me to publicly stand them this hard, but I hope they pony up some sandals for both Rhiannons like they did for pelicanologist Juita Martinez. Yes, Chacos? Mm, No pressure. Okay. If you want Ologies merch, it's at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch of the comedy podcast You Are That for managing merch. They are also hilarious and you can check out their podcast. Uh, Thank you, Aaron Talbert, for being the best admin ever to the Ologies Podcast Facebook group. Thank you to professional transcriber Emily White and the gaggle of very generous Ologites who get these free transcripts available for deaf and hard of hearing science lovers. Those transcripts are up for anyone at alleyward.com slash ologies dash extras. There are also bleeped episodes done by Caleb Patton if you have kiddos. Thank you to Noelle Dilworth who helps schedule the ologist and to Jared Sleeper aka the butcher in my phone for several years of Mind Jam Media for editing these episodes alongside the dear dear Stephen Ray Morris who just launched his back to school series of paleo guests on his own podcast See Jurassic Right. The theme music was written by Nick Thorburn and if you stick around to the end of the episode you know I tell you a secret and if you watched an Instagram live video I did a few weeks ago 
I unboxed Gizmologist Simone Yetch's everyday calendar and it's this sleek illuminated electronic board. It has these beautiful golden lights that you can press to turn on for every day of the year and she made it because it helped her stay on track meditating. So she did a Kickstarter and I bought one and I came. I'm so excited and my aim with it is to use it as an incentive to go to bed every night with the lights off and like Invisalign in on purpose. And y'all, it's working. And it's turning me into a morning person. Last night, I went to bed at 10 p.m. And I got up at 5.30, excited for the day. Like I sprung out of bed, ready to kick ass. So having the accountability of having to press this light, and also probably because it was made by a good friend of mine who has the best intentions of anyone I've ever met, I'm like, I gotta do it. I gotta press this button to make the light go on. So, so far it's working. Stay tuned. We'll see how it goes. But this is an important development in Allie Ward's self-care and energy management. I mean, seeing the sun come up with a coffee feels so much better than waking up on the couch with a bra. Who knew? Okay, take care of yourselves and each other. You're great. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org lost. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.